Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it is Giovanni McIyer once again. It is Saturday, November 4th, 2023. And today's show, uh, the By Jove show, is going to be about things that have to do with the mental health world. And uh, if you know anything about the mental health world, of course, you know that things um, can sometimes change very rapidly and more often they change very slowly but uh, the material that I'm I'm um, I'm I'm going to be talking about today is a, is a combination of both it depends on how you think about it and so uh, part of my background um, in, in addition to doing the podcast here and uh, writing novels is uh, as a practitioner in the mental health field so I'm a psychotherapist who's a clinical social worker. And when I say clinical social worker, clinical refers to the psychotherapeutic part of it. Um, social work, of course, um, takes into account all, uh, many things that might um, you know, involve your mental health. So it's not uh, kind of the approach that psychiatrists and psychologists necessarily take um, because we think of it as the person in the environment, right? So... We believe that uh, things that happen outside of you have a lot to do with your state of mental health. Now, that seems like an obvious thing, but when it comes to treatment and the reductionist style of treatment that typically occurs in the medical system, um, you often don't get that. There's very little time and attention paid to it. Many times there's a lot of lip service paid to it, but you know they don't reimburse based on it, that's for sure. And so, um, in my view, most of what is going on today and most of the problems that people are having, if they're psychological in nature, um, many times there's a, an uh, uh, etiology, uh, a reason for it that lies outside of the body, um, has a lot to do with the stresses of, of, of life. So um, we social workers try to, try to keep that in mind. And uh, so we try to treat people in terms of the mental health part of it, what was going on psychologically in someone's mind, and also the circumstances in which they live. And uh, so anyway, um, on Thursday and Friday, I attended a, what they termed a psychedelic symposium um, that was sponsored by a major research university. In the Midwest, I'm not going to get into specifics. I'm not going to name names of the people who were presenting or anything like that. But I'm, I'm going to I'm going to kind of give you the gist of it and give you my my critique, my analysis of what was going on. Um, so it was also co-sponsored and took place um, on the campus of a pretty well-known facility. That's a biotech firm um, who's trying to. Uh, come up with some some pharmaceuticals, some drugs that uh, can be used for treatment um, in a variety of circumstances. And that's all wonderful. Um, well, depending on how you look at it, I'm going to get into that. But, uh, you know, their, their point of view is that we're going to develop pharmaceuticals that are derived from psychedelic compounds, and we're going to apply that within the traditional medical system. And there is a bit of a nod to, you know, alternative systems, but 
This is one of the big issues I've I found with the symposium because um, we 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 got into a kind of a I think a rut there because um, we tended to think of things in terms of of that there's one way to do something, right? And uh, while that might be practical and realistic, um, it doesn't mean that we can't have a couple paths towards approaching this this um, subject in a way that will optimize um, accessibility, right, for all all the people who are suffering with uh, mental health conditions, and um, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of a idea of you know. Um, I'm not going to name the sponsors either, but, uh, you know, sponsors are kind of what you would imagine. Um, they come from rather uh, traditional places, um, places that are deeply entrenched um, with health care in general, but um, that have that bias, I think, built in. And um, not only the sponsorship, but many of the presenters and uh you know, the whole the whole feel of it um, was kind of coming from the traditional medical, um, let's say, paradigm. So I, I, I learned quite a bit, and when I went out there, um, it was with the, with the intent to try and figure out how is this, how can all this information, or what's going on. You know, this is the third annual um, symposium. There's going to be one next year. Um, you know, what can I learn from it? Uh, as a practitioner, of course, I I deal with a variety of people with a whole bunch of different mental health diagnoses, um, some mild, some you know moderate, some severe, and uh, the psychedelic world is is fascinating because uh, I think uh, in the in the past, you know, back in the fifties, sixties, even into the seventies, there was some research and it was very promising, especially with substance uh, abuse disorders. Um, and uh, but it was all shut down for political reasons. Um, there was a war on drugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was this contribution of Timothy Leary, um, and uh, you know this this there is a there is a thesis out there that's being thrown around as if it's one hundred percent fact at this point. But um, I, I can see why it was developed because the people who are trying to develop the the, the psychedelic uh, pharmaceuticals and the practice with which those are going to be applied are fearful of another backlash. Now, there may or may not be another backlash because of the backlash back in the 70s and 80s, you know, um, the Ronald Reagan stuff, Nancy Reagan, you know, this is your brain on drugs, just say no to drugs kind of thing. Um, they're worried, and I guess it makes sense. But uh, I, I think that's a reactive kind of um, perspective, and we shouldn't dwell too much on it. But unfortunately, that has, that has become a cornerstone um, before anybody had re-entered into this idea of psychedelic investigation, that seems to be one of the foundational pillars that we must recognize, right? That uh, we don't want this thing to get out of hand is kind of what they're saying, right? We don't want the psychedelic substances to be available and then the, the public or, you know, certain people who may have, you know, motives that are less than, let's say, uh, direct, you know, get a hold of this stuff so that so it gets off track, and we have another backlash, and that's understandable. But uh, I think we're we're jumping a little bit ahead of the gun. We can we can we can proceed, and if we start feeling those those things, then we can we can adjust. But anyway, um, my interest is purely 
selfish and that I would I would I, I would hope that these substances are available. They already are available in raw form, but they're not available pharmaceutically. Now, that brings up a whole other question because if you look at what's going on with meth um, not methadone with um, ketamine, for instance, ketamine is the first drug has gone through all the hoops that you have to go through legally, um, regulatory, um, et cetera, et cetera, in order to get on the market. Now, in most towns, major cities, you can find ketamine clinics that will treat depression, et cetera, et cetera. You go there, and most of it's not reimbursable, so you're going to have to pay out of pocket. Um, each administration of an IV of ketamine, and it runs you somewhere around $3,000. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but that's what I heard, something around that. So if you're going to have, let's say, six treatments, it's going to cost you upwards of almost $20,000 without any guarantee that it's going to work, of course, right? But um, just like SSRIs and the other antidepressants don't necessarily work, right, on, on each individual, right, they might work, uh, you know, in a statistical way that most people it will be helpful for, but many people it won't. So you don't really have much of a guarantee. But anyway... Um, you know, that's, that's a lot to ask, right? And, and, and this is part of the problem and something that came up late in the symposium was this question of who has control, right? And so uh, if you're in the pharmaceutical business, obviously you have a, you have a, you have a, uh, an in, uh, a bias, right? An ingrown bias because you want to make money. You're a business. So the usual kind of PR thing that they throw out is, you know, we put a lot of money into the research of this. And so, therefore, we should be able to recoup our money and make a bit of a profit if we can provide these pharmaceuticals that are, you know, approved by the FDA and are proven to be safe, et cetera, et cetera. And how are we going to apply these, these pharmaceuticals? Now, of course, with psychedelics, psychedelics are a special class um, of, of drugs because um, they're used recreationally and they're used uh, and, and they're, they have very powerful effects. You know, and um, psychotropic effects, you know, things that uh, can be um, uh, quite uh, intense for the average person who has never delved into the um, into that world. And uh, honestly, I have not delved into the world of uh, hallucinogenics. Um, I have, uh, for whatever reason, in my own way, um, have had hallucinatory experiences. Um, when I use cannabis, um, if you have enough of it, um, you can get into that realm. And, um, you know, although it might not be the same experience, um, it can be a little frightening at times because your, your sense of self and your sense of, of the way that time passes and, and, and your, 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 your sensory perception can, can be quite altered to the point where if you're not prepared for it, uh, you, you can have a, a rather negative effect. Um, reaction to it, which is what happened to me when I was a teenager. I wasn't prepared for it, and um, it, it, it actually did a lot of harm to me. Um, it took me years to kind of get my, my sense of self back and my sense of, you know, that I was, uh, get rid of this depersonalization, um, derealization feeling. Um, so, I mean, there is some, something to be said for the watching out to make sure that this stuff is 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 used um, intelligently and safely and with some amount of discipline. Um, but anyway, um, there's a lot of controversy, um, and it came up in the latter part of the symposium because apparently in uh, in places where certain things have become legal, 
right, or decriminalized at least, um, they've set up a certain amount of standards. So in Oregon and Colorado, those are the two um, most obvious case uh, cases to point out. Um, turns out that most people who are going to the clinics are of a certain class, certain wealth, um, and and they're and, and statistically speaking, it looks like they're using it as a recreational, you know, a recreational vehicle rather than as a therapeutic intervention. Even though when you use it, you apparently have to, you know, do it in a supervised setting where, you know, set and setting are taken account for, which is a big part of the experience. And, um, but nonetheless, um, they're able to, to have access to these things. And, um, this is what, at least what was reported at the, at the conference. Now, you know, once you say that these things are used rec recreationally, then all the people who are in positions of power get, get quite upset about it because, you know, by, I mean, my God, if people use these things recreationally, how terrible. Well, you know, I don't really see it from that perspective because um, you can certainly use these things recreationally. It depends what you mean by recreationally, right? Um, people, you know, want to have interesting experiences. And, um, you know, it might not be that they, they uh, are having some kind of mental health issue, but um, certainly as one of the, uh, as one of the panelists pointed out, um, you know, we, we don't have to think of this as purely a, a disease process uh, perspective, right? Where, where someone has a problem and we're going to fix it by using psychedelics, right? There's, there's a whole other aspect to this where um, you want to have peak experiences, right? And, and live up to your potential. Um, of course, Maslow was, was cited here um, in the pyramid of, uh, you know, his famous pyramid scheme where when you're looking to self-actualize, right? Um, some of these compounds can be very helpful because uh, it gives you insight in ways that uh, you may not be, uh, that may not be accessible through, through normal, you know, mental function. And so this practitioner also mentioned that meditation is another way of getting there um, because the psychedelic experience, although if you have a, let's say a psilocybin magic mushroom kind of thing, it can last four to four to eight hours. Um, uh, and it, it's quite intense, but when it's when it's over, it's over. And uh, you, there are some neuroplasticity issues that are involved here. So even though the drug is out of your system, it may still have, you know, kind of um, reorganized certain circuitry in certain parts of your brain, so that the effects are long-lasting. Um, when I say long-lasting, it can be in terms of months or even years. Um, and so th this is what happens with, with even, even, you know, kind of traditional medicines. Um, what I've noticed with cannabis, and, and it's a shame that cannabis, for some reason, doesn't seem to be included in this, in this discussion of the psychedelic um, realm, because um, I guess it's, it's not a common thing for people to have, you know, uh, as, as, as uh, let's say, dramatic changes in sensory perception, etc., but it's not a bad way if you want a, 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 let's say, a gateway drug, and I don't mean it in the pejorative way that most people think of it. Um, cannabis is actually an excellent way to do it because you can titrate your, yourself up, which is what I did several years ago. Even though I did have a traumatic incident years past, decades past, I was able to titrate myself up so that I could uh, control the negative side effects, um, if there were any, and um, start to enjoy some of the positive aspects of it, but, but cannabis seems to be completely off the table. 
And uh, it's kind of interesting because it's it's a much more accessible drug. It's a much more um, easily controllable drug in a way. Um, and people can grow it themselves. Um, it's actually an excellent way to to uh, introduce yourself into the into the psychedelic realm. And um, at some point, I will be, you know, in a couple of years, we'll be um, going on to probably a psilocybin experience. Um, and hopefully by then it'll be more legal, right, than it is now, or more decriminalized. But anyway, um, the point being is that uh, you, you don't necessarily have to see this as a disease model thing. You can see it as something that will enhance, in a positive psychology way, your lived experience, right? So there wasn't a lot of attention paid to that. And, well, of course not, because we're talking about, uh, you know, a university with a medical system, and we're talking about... A, an institution, private institution, as developing pharmaceuticals, and so it's going to be slanted towards the disease model and the business, you know, making money, right? And um, to say when I, when I, when I would listen, there were many, many speakers, presenters, and you know, from from you, all you need to do is hear a couple of sentences out of their mouth, or whatever their particular background is, or their position of authority. And you can pretty t pretty much tell where they're gonna where they're gonna come down on. But uh, there were a few surprises, right? And there were audience members who were there um, to sh share certain um, perspectives. So I'll get back to that because the when it really got interesting is near the end of the symposium, and of course they don't have enough time to have a real dialogue about this. But I will get back to it. So I want to just kind of describe. Um, you know the, the the kind of types of presentations that were being uh, that were being present um, offered here at the symposium. So, interesting enough, interestingly enough, the first um, the first couple of presenters um, were were very good and very interesting because they were talking about psychedelics from a historical perspective, right? And how psychedelics have been, you know, many many of the psychedelic practices have been usurped. Right by Western culture, right? So that we, you know, back in the day, and including through today and beyond, you know, there there are places where these substances are are harvestable, you know. And I'm talking about psilocybin. I'm talking about um, peyote, for instance. Highly controversial because it's it's uh, you know it, that that gets into the realm of indigenous people and and the and the power or lack of power that they have over the over the control of these um, these cacti, which uh, take many many years to grow. So, and uh, you know, there's even this question: is you know should should non-indigenous people be partaking of this in any way, shape, or form um, without the consent? of indigenous peoples, right? And at this point, uh, you know, the indigenous people do not have control over this. And one of the speakers pointed out that, uh, I, I think on the Mexican side of the border, because pe peyote grows in a region, I think in the Sonoran Desert, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, that that is spread out over the southern part of, of the United States, I think in Arizona, and it, and it goes into the, uh, it might be Chihuahua, I'm not sure which, which province, I'm not sure what they call those, but um, what state in Mexico, but it's a northern state of Mexico, and it, and it goes over the international border, right? So there's peyote on both sides, and but but you have, you know, basically an indigenous population on the United States side that 
you know, really has claim to that in a, in a sense. Um, and, and uh, I mean, you could argue that legally, I guess, the federal government in some ways has claim to it. But, I mean, really, when you think about it, it's, you know, it, it, it's organic to the indigenous population. And, and the same goes for Mexico. However, one of the presenters pointed out that the region where the peyote grows and the people who live there are not the people who control the peyote. Right? The people who control the peyote actually live in a different, it's nearby community, but somehow they have managed, I shouldn't get into much detail about it, but it was a very interesting presentation because I, I did, I was unaware of that. And I thought, how interesting, right? Because you have two, two, two groups of uh, Mexican people, I'm assuming at least one of them is indigenous, if not both, who are struggling to control this area, right? Um, that, that has peyote uh, that, that naturally occurs there that can be harvested there. And there is a limited amount of it, and that's one of the big ethical issues, right, uh, of using it. It's because if people start uh, harvesting it who, are, who, are, who, who really don't have any business doing that, uh, start using it, and especially if they use it recreationally, right, in a non-cultural, non-curative um, or, or expansive type of experience, then, then of course, it's kind of like the diabetes drug, you know. Everybody's using the diabetes drug to lose weight. Well, it's not really for losing weight. Now, losing weight happens to be one of the main, <laughs> you know, one of the main things you need to do when you, when, when you have to do, deal with diabetes, but, right, it's not really the point of the drug. So if you have a whole bunch of people using a drug, um, and people who really need it can't have access to it, then that, that, that is an issue, right? That's a public policy issue. Anyway, um, you know, there's this whole decolonialization movement in the psychedelic um, world that has to be addressed because we don't want people to be abused. We don't want people to use the substances in an abusive way in ways that are not just. And so there's a whole presentation uh, about that, and that was... I found very, very informative and, and interesting. And uh, one of the presenters, who was African-American, said that, uh, you know, you white folks, which the majority of people at the symposium were, um, but it was a fairly mixed crowd. Um, but I think he was talking to people who, you know, are kind of in power authority figures, right? Um, at this point in history, still. Um, you know, it's you people who are going to have to change. He's saying it's not our problem. You know, if we had our druthers, we would, you know, everything would be fine. But, you know, you have the power, you have the authority, you have, you can make things change. And only you can make change, uh, which is partially true. And I, I guess in the spirit of the argument, I think I agree with that. But um, it's interesting how he put that because, um, you know, uh, it's a little bit like my, the apartheid uh, question I'm talking about, like in South Africa, for instance, right, where, you know, if you want to fix apartheid, um, yeah, there are demonstrations and actions that are being taken place, but essentially people in power have to be forced to change, right, or they have to take it upon themselves to change, at least, you know, maybe reluctantly and maybe way too late, but nonetheless, that's what, what typically happens. Um, happened in the United States and the civil rights movement, it happened it, it will have to happen in Israel as well, um, I think, given the power differentials there. But anyway, similar similar such uh, dynamics going on in this world. Um, so um, there was also a presenter there who 
was looking at it from an, an archivist's point of view. And that was interesting because, um, of course, the archives are typically um, owned or operated by dominant people, institutions in our society, and therefore they're likely to have a bias as to what gets collected, you know, whether it's research papers or personal papers of, of high-profile psychedelic researchers or actual objects, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a whole politics involved there, right? Who gets what? And why? Uh, that makes sense to me. Um, so I think there has to be a lot of attention paid to that, right? Um, so I also thought that that was very interesting. Um, and then, um, in the uh, second half of the day, we got more into, um, you know, what most people consider kind of the nuts and bolts of the situation, right? So we started talking about, well, actually, uh, the first part of the, the presentation was 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 involving um, the humanities, right? Um, getting people who are ex expert in the humanities field to comment about about these things in a cultural way, right? So um, there are lots of people uh, represented there. One of which was the person I was talking about in the biote situation, um, and there were others who who made some. You know, they have so little time really to to, to speak. It's unfortunate because um, I think you can learn a lot, um, but but because I have to kind of put their spiel in, in literally five to ten minutes, uh, you, you don't quite get, you know, the, the the gist of what they're trying to say, and and then they have a panel discussion, and um, the panel discussion is, is is short too, and so therefore it makes it very hard to um, to kind of get a grasp on what they're what they're trying to contribute here, but I think it is very very important to get their contributions. Um, so starting around 2 o'clock, 2.30, there was uh, actually, th this is when they got into the nuts and bolts of things, right, where you're talking about preclinical developments in the field, uh, preclinical, I didn't understand what that meant. I thought it meant before it gets to clinical uh, tri trial stage, but what it really means is it means preclinical in the sense that it's work that's being done on animals, not on human beings, Right, so that, that was something I learned yesterday, uh, or the day before, and uh, that was helpful to, to kind of get an idea of what's what's going on there. You know, what's the latest uh, in animal studies involving these compounds and uh, ther therapeutic uh, applications. Uh, the second half of that hour was was devoted to the clinical part of that, which is, as I explained, is um, focused on on human experiments, and uh, that was really good to. Um, to get a bit of an overview on that. And uh, at that point I left, I had to go, but there was a whole section on um, the business aspect of it. You know, how does capitalism play into this? How does, uh, uh, you know, uh, patents and, and those kind of things. And I wish I would have been there for that because, um, you know, you can imagine what's going on in terms of the fight, the fight over the patents, right? Who's gonna own this stuff? Um, is it going to be publicly owned? Is it going to be? And when you think about it, these substances, it's a little absurd, right? Because these substances are natural substances. You can grow cannabis. You can grow um, psilocybin mushrooms with psilocybin in it. You can peyote is available. Um, DMT uh, typically, uh, you know, at this point is synthesized, but originally it comes from certain. You know, as I understand it, a combination of two natural elements, a bark and some other thing 
that uh, that's mixed together to provide the the uh, ayahuasca experience. Um, there's uh, MDMA, of course. MDMA is more purely a uh, a, a laboratory uh, concoction, right? You you can't really get it outside of uh, outside of that. And um, ketamine, of course, it's kind of the same. It's a substance that's more or less made in the lab, I believe. And so some of these things are very, you know, it seems like the pharmaceutical medical model, disease model, are more suited for in terms of how they get, you know, distributed out there and who owns what and that kind of thing because it gets highly technical based on lots of research that's done in the laboratory. Um, so you can understand that the, the fight of that is much, even even more contentious. But, you know, one of the problems with this whole symposium is that it, it, it just assumes that there's one way to do th things. And, and the way to do it is through the medical model, through pharmaceutical research and the public policy that, you know, and legal policy that, that, that has to come along with that in order for this to be distributed properly and justly. Well, you know, we, we know we have a, a poor system when it comes to that. We don't, we don't really need to buy that as a, as a, as a starting point. Starting point, we should be very suspicious of how these things are going. Because again, I think everything is weighted toward business. That is our medical system at, at the moment. It's business first, health second. Used to be health was first and business, okay, if you made some money, good, right? That makes sense to me. But now it's the completely out with the, with the managed care system, right? Which came in the 80s, 90s. Um, it, it has drastically re reorganized our system to a point where it's really gotten quite corrupt, in my opinion. And, uh, and uh, so if you're basing it on that, you're already off to a bad start, right? But, but let's just say, in a perfect world, that that system is the best thing we can come up with. And so this is how we're going to proceed. Okay, well, then the symposium makes sense, right? Because everything's going to go along with that. And now you have people who are going to say, hey, hold on a second, you know, uh, they'll bring up some skepticism and pessimism about it, but you know these are just fine details that have to be have to be worked out after the fact. Well, by by that time it's too late, right? So um, you know those, those are kind of the, the things that were going on in my mind, and I'm thinking, my God, this stuff is going so slowly with all the regulations and everything. By the time I get around to it, am I really even going to be able to practice this? Let alone you know have it available to clients, right? Because clients can procure these substances on their own. Many of my clients do. And, and, they, and they have um, informal, um, I guess I would say trips on these things. And then, you know, we can process it in, in, in session. Now, at this point, um, someone were to come to session who is under the influence of psychedelic uh, compound, I'm not sure that that would be a wise thing to do. Um, because number one, I'm not really trained, you know, to deal with it. But, you know, things could come up of an emergency nature or, you know, lots of different possibilities that could put my license in, in, um, in jeopardy, which means my, my way of, you know, making money and getting through the world. And it can put that person's health in jeopardy. It can, there can be a lot of things that can go negative there. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong and there's nothing you can do, right? Some, some people who practice in the psychotherapeutic world insist that you be sober, when, when you're in session and uh, kind of discourage you from not being sober when you're outside of session. Now, I don't know if that's really, uh, you know, the one's decision to be made, or at least it 
should be talked about because I think sometimes practitioners think that that's going to seep into your therapeutic process. Now, I'm highly skeptical of that idea, and um, but it's a whole different thing, right? If someone is, uh, you know, even let's say high on, on cannabis, right? Um, I know some people have divulged to me, clients, that they are high in session. And, um, you know, when it, when it's presented to you, I guess you just say, you know, okay, um, let's work with that in mind. Um, and many times, if there's no problem that arises from that, as, our, as far as I can see, as far as they can see, that doesn't really make much difference. If it, if it becomes problematic, then you address it. If it's not problematic, then you don't. Right? Because some people use cannabis, um, for instance, to to um, regulate, uh, you know, uh, you know, things that are not psychotherapeutic, such as you know, digestive issues or you know, sleep issues or whatever. So, you know, are you going to ask people who are using, you know? Uh, certain sleep medicines and even even though they're you know approved by the you know pharmaceutical and medical industry you're going to ask those people that they can't you know to, to not use those right i mean i i think that's a little silly it's only a problem when it becomes a problem right so i don't think we should have any you know steadfast rules necessarily on these things um sometimes i think cannabis would uh would open up people or even you know they it, even if it causes anxiety it might be a vehicle through which one can do some pretty good uh, psychotherapeutic work, right? I know in my case, it's not just the positive experiences that uh, that are helpful to me. It's also the negative ones. It's the challenges that come along with it, right? So, um, you know, I don't know. I think I'm a lot more flexible in terms of that than, than most people. Even people who I go to see for therapy will insist that you're completely sober. Well, it depends what you mean by that. Right. I mean, you can't have alcohol. You can't have caffeine. You can't have. You can't smoke cigarettes. You can't. You can't have any pharmaceutical, you know, intervention whatsoever in your body. I mean, that kind of gets ridiculous, right? Um, it's not a very workable situation. But anyway, um, day two comes along, and uh, uh, the first presenter was was kind of a more of a scientist, uh, geeky kind of guy, very very smart. You know, focused on um, these these psycho. Plastogens, which basically means compounds that alter your the neural network, right? You know, the plasticity of your mind, but that don't do it. Uh, the, the, you know they do it in a way that you, you know you don't have a hallucinogenic experience. So that's important. A lot of people, because many people, not majority of people, don't want to have any kind of hallucinogenic or psychotropic experience that is challenging, and they just want to take the pill and have things get better. For instance, in this case, it had to do with people with schizophrenia. Of course, hallucinogenics and schizophrenia don't mix well, right? Um, they typically have very bad people who suffer from that or have, have bad outcomes when they use those kind of substances. So in that case, it makes a whole lot of sense, right, to try and develop a drug that is um, a, a, psychopl a psychoplastogen, but that is a, a non-hallucinogenic Right? So that was kind of fascinating. I didn't know that there was such a thing. So in that case, it's great. You take a pill, and hopefully it'll help. But uh, these, these, this, this, most of this was pre-clinical work. There were some interesting um, results from, and very promising results to make one believe that this can be applied to humans at some point. And so that was, I think, a very interesting talk. Um, and then you had a, a, another person come in 
who, after that, who was um, kind of explaining how important uh, placebo effect is, how important set and setting are, you know, because in a medicalized world, which we mostly live in, um, you know, all that stuff doesn't matter. You take the pill and you get the benefit, right? But it turns out with, with hallucinogenics and psychedelic medicine, um, the set and setting is, is very much important in terms of the efficacy of these drugs. And uh, he had made a very good case through his research that uh, this is the case. And so if you're going to apply um, psychedelics to in a, in, a, in a medical way, that you, you cannot ignore the set and setting and also the psychotherapeutic intervention that has to happen hand in hand. And for me, that makes a lot of sense. That seems to be the consensus. That seems to be the consensus of the MAPS people. The MAPS people are the people who are, you know, are going back and getting, they, they started this whole thing, right, to, to get back into the research of how psych, psycho, psychedelics can help people. And uh, so, um, great. I think this is a, a, ver a very good way to put it, but, but not necessarily the only way to put it, right? As I will discuss a little bit later on when we get to the people who are working in a clinical sense, like clinical in terms of psychotherapeutic um, treatment, right, which came later in the day. But uh, his contribution was extremely uh, important because it uh, really clarified, you know, what, what, what is involved when you have to do it. It's not so simple as just giving a pill, right? Some things you can literally just take the pill and you're better, right? It's more of a physical thing. But anytime you, you the mind, the brain, the, whatever you want to call it, the self, right, it, it gets to be a little trickier. It's not as linear. It's not as scientific, right? There's an art to it. There's a little bit of a different aspect of it. And it's, I don't know if it's equally important, but in my opinion, um, I, I think it is. I think you can't do one without the other. Now, I think you can do psychotherapeutic interventions, obviously, without having any kind of uh, pharmaceutical inter intervention. Um, most of the research shows in most cases that both together are really what's most effective. But I say if you're going to err one way or another, try the psychotherapeutic way because that, that has the least harm possible, right? Um, so um, I say do it conservatively. Start with some psychotherapy. If that doesn't seem to work and you want to add a, 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 a pharmaceutical intervention, then that kind of makes sense. But um, I would try to do it without it if I could. Um, and, and that's mostly due to the way the system is is, is um, how access to the system is and how expensive it is sometimes and how practical it is for people to have access to these um, pharmaceuticals. But it's even getting hard to have psychotherapeutic interventions at this point because there was a lot of talk yesterday about how hard it is just to find a therapist. And of course, in my case, in my practice, I, I, I have experienced that, that uh, there are many people who are having trouble finding people um, who who seem to be able to help them. Um, so, but that's a whole different thing. We have to think about that in a different context. Um, so then, there's a third presenter in terms of this experience part of the symposium, who I thought was very strong too, because he focused a lot more on the, on the psychotherapeutic side of psychedelic treatment and how important it was. And uh, everything he said made sense. It was a little less like rigorous in the sense of the scientific part of it, but that goes with the territory. There, there's no way it can't be. But 
you know, it's unfortunate that some of these presentations, um, because they seem less scientific, they, people tend to, you know, kind of give, give, give them second shrift just naturally. And I think that's another bias we have to get over in the mental health field is that mental health is a combination of science and art, right? And um, one, one is not more important than the other often. And uh, we shouldn't think that that psychotherapeutic or psychology or any of these kind of sciences are, 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 are the equivalent of mathematics and physics, which I also have a background in. And so when social scientists, you know, um, you know, put so much weight on, on scientific rigor, um, so sometimes it's misplaced because it doesn't actually apply um, in, in a particular case, which means that you know, um, we should be thinking of things in terms of, well, when we have uh, quantitative information of a scientific um, reproducible way and your, the scientific method type of approach, of course, we take that seriously in context, but it doesn't mean that we don't also focus on the qualitative stuff that's out there and the, the things that are, are a little more, um, a little less, um, let's say, uh, you know, use the tools of, of the scientific method in a, in a very rigorous way. We shouldn't downplay it at all. We should take each for what they are and what they can, and, and make distinctions and not, not favor one or the other. Just just take them as they are and uh, get what you what you can out of them. But unfortunately, that's, that's not the way things go in our world. Um, the scientific stuff is always given precedence over it because, um, you know, it has been so, so, so successful. But you have to be sure that you're you're applying it to the right kind of things. When you're applying it to math and physics, by all means. If you're applying it to chemistry, it gets a little more slippery. If you apply it to biology, it gets even more slippery. When you get apply it to social science, economics, psychology, sociology, it gets even slipper more slippery, right? So um, let's not pretend that you know that that it has the same rigor. But uh, you know, but don't don't let that scare you off it either. Because all of this stuff is important. It all works together. It has to be a holistic approach when it comes to the affairs of human humans and their minds, right? So nonlinear types of types of investigation. You know, science tends to be a very linear type of endeavor. So that was brought up, and I appreciated whoever brought that up. So then we got into another, uh, in the afternoon, we got into a little bit more in the, in the humanities thing, but uh, again, had so little time to really uh, delve into these things. There could be a whole other day on the humanities things. I wish there had been, you know, this idea of narrative came up, which is interesting, you know, because we, we, we think of things psychologically, you know, sometimes through the narrative that we tell ourselves or the narrative that's imposed upon us. And these are very important ideas to take into account because sometimes clients aren't even aware Right, that they have a, uh, an internal narrative of, of, of how they see life or, or, or something has been imposed on them, right, culturally. So these are extremely important things because sometimes those are the keys, right? You know, you see, point something out and say, hey, you know, you don't have to think of things like this, this way. And then people say, I don't. And that's how everybody else I know thinks of things. Well, okay, but you don't have to. You have a choice. Here are some alternatives. These might be more workable for you, right? So anyway, the, the second part of the day got into more preclinical, you know, what, what's happening this year, what is going to come in the future. And we got into more clinical stuff after that. And it was all very exciting because there's some 
you know, really encouraging news in terms of um, major depression and treatment by psilocybin, right? And it turned out it was uh, the study that they had been conducting, the person who was giving the presentation, just one of the participants um, was presenting it, and uh, it was it was quite quite dramatic, right? And the uh, results were much more effective than SSRIs, much more effective than this, much more effective than that. So for major depression, for instance, the uh, psilocybin research is, is very optimistic to a point where it's like, my God, like miracle drug type thing, right? Um, but um, then we got into the actual dirty business of how does this stuff, once you have it, what are you going to do with it? And how are you going to get it to the people who need it? Right? Because if you don't get to that point, if you don't think about that or discuss it, then all the other stuff is kind of moot, right? Um, tree falls in the forest, right? That kind of thing. But anyway, we got into it, and um, there's an excellent presenter, a person who was a clinical director who was applying the MAPS protocol in terms of um, psilocybin for, I think, mostly substance abuse, uh, substance abuse issues. And... Uh, other things, and uh, she was uh, really uh, quite quite insightful about, you know, all the all the, you know, sticking points of how this works. Um, very optimistic about it, but also realistic about it, um, and wants to make sure that uh, the people who need the stuff can get it. And so it was interesting to listen to her her perspective on it because I think she did combine kind of a, a little bit of you know the science with the art. And I really appreciated that. Was, that was the first time the whole symposium, you know, very late into it, that I got that sense. And I, I was just really digging what she was saying. So I, got, I was feeling really good about it. And then we got into a, 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 a practitioner panel. And, and so this, you know, there was a psychotherapist on it, a person who was, um, who was an MBA, who uh, was the head of this institution is trying to figure out, you know, policy issues, uh, governmental how do we, how does this work? You know, how's it going to work? And then there was a, a representative from Wisconsin government, um, regulators who was there, uh, an attorney. And uh, uh, that same person, the clinical director, was uh, in on it. And then this other fellow who, was, who did most of the preclinical um, presentation, who uh, surprisingly, um, to my great delight, even though he was a very geeky, sciencey guy, he understood the art side and he understood the what he called the underground. I'd be careful about using that term because it makes it sound like kind of slimy and whatever. But you know, the underground being people taking these substances and applying to them to themselves, right? And he made a very good point, which is the stuff that they're doing in the symposium and you know, through the university and through this private institution, pharmaceutical place. It's a very tiny world, right? It's, it had, at this point, it's affecting very few people. What's really going on is that when people need solutions to their problems or mental health issues, they're going to do whatever they can do, you know, to, to, to get it, right? Whatever that means. And what that means a lot of times is, you know, they, they're looking for alternative medical um, interventions, alternative practices, things that are outside the purview of what they can get in the medical field. Because right now, you can't get any of this stuff, right? It's a controlled substance, Schedule 1, get caught with it, even if it's decriminalized, 
you know, you can still get into some issues, get into trouble. It's very virgin territory. We don't know what's going to happen. There haven't been enough test cases through the courts to understand what the repercussions of practicing this kind of intervention are. So therefore, a lot of people don't stay out of it, right? But when they stay out of it, it means that the people who they could be treating, right, are, are getting the short end of the stick. So they're just going to take, they're going to take care of themselves and, and, and hats off to them. Right in 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 my opinion, because you know um, this is where some of the controversy came because there was a young woman in the audience who asked a kind of a simple question in a sense because you know there there was all this talk you know the lawyer on the panel kept talking about you know you know we don't want this to get out of hand and one of the other participants you know this is what's happening in Oregon this was happening in Colorado you know it's becoming more like a uh, a pharmaceutical touristy kind of thing where people are using it recreationally. We don't want that. Well, first of all, you know, who's to say that that's necessarily a negative, but, you know, that might, and that might also just be the way it starts out, right? Until things, you know, apparently what they're saying is the business model is not doing well when it comes to, um, you know, people being treated with psilocybin out there at this point. And, and so, um, it's getting off track and it's it's getting out of control and there are some issues, consumer issues, like what if someone gets hurt and what, what's the recourse and all this other stuff. And it turns out the businesses are not doing that well because there's 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 just so much to, to worry about, so many things that just make it hard for them to to, to work properly. But um, one person pointed out, you know, you know, this is all sounding a little bit paternalistic to me. And then, of course, a couple of people laughed and a couple of people clapped. And, you know, you got to understand what crowd you're in, right? You're in a, you're in a very traditional crowd. So that, that, that opinion is not going to go over well. But in my opinion, I was so thankful that she brought it up because my, my head was nodding because I was saying, look, it's a little bit like my, my idea about evolution and climate change, right? When, if you think that you can tech, technologically work your, yourself out of this situation, and somehow get get around the rules of evolution, right? The, the world has evolved over millennia, I mean, eras, very, very long, billions of years, right? Like Carl Sagan, billions and billions of years, who is also a proponent of cannabis use, I might add. Um, you know, if you think you're going to out, outsmart it with a couple hundred years of technology, right? Um, you, you're probably wrong because the earth has been sorting this stuff out for billions of years. And if you think you're smarter than that, um, I would say a pretty arrogant person. So her point of view is basically this. Look, we've had this stuff for a long time, millennia, right? Um, indigenous populations have have been using all these things for many years. They've honed the practice down, you know, to, to quite a, a, a level of detail, right? So they know how to do this stuff. They've, they've worked it out with a fine-tooth comb. And, um, you know, we already have what we know, right? We don't, we don't have to do all this fancy research. We don't have to do all this legalities, regulations, you know. None of this is necessary, right? And we don't need it to cost $3,000 a dose, right? We can just grow it in our backyard. This stuff is available now. All you have to do is make sure that people don't get busted for it, right? And then... Um, set up a system now in my my point of view you know you can do it in a traditional way where you, you just take it upon yourself to do it or you have guidance from you know let's say elders in the community or you know, because the psychotherapist was an elder in the community who was very versed in this stuff he trains people 
therapists how to, and I want to get in touch with them because, you know, this is the way you can do it right now, right? You don't have to wait for years, decades, for God's sakes. By the time we get this stuff out of here, I'm, I'm going to be retired and not practically, well, maybe, um, practically not, you know, and, and I'm not going to be able to, to get it to the people who I wanted to get, get it to, and it's not going to be cost effective, and it's not going to, you know, by the time the pharmaceutical and the traditional medical system figures this out, it's going to be way too late, not just for the people who need it, but for the people who want to practice it. I'm ready to go. Right? And I'm one of the people who believe that you have to undergo a psychedelic experience in order to be competent to practice. Now, that's controversial. Um, it's a controversy because some people, you know, say you don't. And, you know, yeah, in a way, you don't. You know, I mean, you don't necessarily have to. But what's important in the psychedelic therapeutic process is that you have a good rapport with your pet therapist. And rapport is the number one predictor of positive outcomes in the mental health field. And that's why I say it's an art. Because a lot of people think it's technique and science and all these fancy things, you know, that they're selling out there, right? That are mechanical in nature, right? That are medicalized. No, that's not what the, the vast majority, and this has been researched to the to the nth degree, vast majority is the, the rapport between therapist and client, right? So in the psychedelic experiences, it's even more important to have this, right? And it's a little bit magical. It's not something you can necessarily train or, you know, it has to do with life experience and of the therapist, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it is absolutely uh, 100% relevant um, in this case. And so, you know, the, the, the thing is that the person out in the audience was saying this is paternalistic and, the, and the, you know, you're having a very paternalistic attitude toward this. And I thought, yeah, you know, sure enough, that's true. And uh, the, uh, the regulator on the panel said, well, yes, it is paternalistic. And I thought that was pretty good of her just to say, you know, just admit it, right? But then she kind of went into this, you know, thing like, well, you know, we do all sorts of things. We regulate all sorts of things, seatbelts, you know, it's done for the... And then, of course, the person in the audience said, you know, her reaction was, you know, I found that very patronizing, right? Because you're, you're not really addressing what I'm bringing up. And very shortly after that, after a lot of uncomfortability, the, you know, the, the, uh, the moderator, who I thought was, was not a very good moderator, honestly... Um, he didn't seem to be very, um, let's say, didn't do his research all that much and um, seemed to be wanting to create controversy when there was none. So at a certain point, there was, there, there, you know, times when the panels were, he was trying to make the panels kind of, you know, like, he's trying to say that this person's point of view was this and that person's point of view was the opposite of that. And, you know, you guys you know, fight it out. And, and the first thing they said was like, well, that's actually not my position. And I think it's a, more, a little more nuanced. And the professionals on the panel were, were interesting because they didn't fall for that, you know, kind of, you know, the, the person who's the moderator, in, in moderation, there's always this idea that there has to be conflict, right, between the parties instead of cooperation. And that's kind of where he was coming from. So I thought yeah, that was kind of flawed in a way because these people were not in conflict necessarily. There were conflictual elements of what they were saying. But in many ways, they're agreeing a lot about about a lot of the uh, defects in the system. Let's say, no matter if they were in the traditional or non-traditional, um, you know. And then the psychotherapist, who is more the the, the new agey kind of guy, and I don't mean that pejoratively, because I, I believe this guy is very has a lot of wisdom. And so they, someone in the audience asked him a question. Of course, the controversy went away. There wasn't enough time. But essentially, what I what I learned is that you have these. You have these two camps out there, but, um, you know, and they think they're, they're in opposition to each other, but they don't have to be, 
but because of our business model of the health care system, they, 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 they do have to be in, in conflict with each other. And, and this is how. So there was, a, there was a, a logical fallacy being promulgated throughout this whole the course of the, the events as the, as, the, as the day dwindled down, right? That, you know, there's only one way to do something. You know, and from the point of view of the symposium, the one way, of course, is the way they want to do it, right? In a traditional medical model, pharmaceutical intervention, and we'll give a nod to everything else. So it's nice that they actually give a nod to have other people, but they, they do it sort of in a dishonest way because, you know, as soon as these alternate points of view are brought up, they're, they're very quickly, the moderator just kind of quickly shifted, you know, and everybody gets uncomfortable and just wants it to go away, right? But it, that... To me, that was the height of the of the symposium, and it was at the very last minute, and there's no more time to hash it out. And even the guy who's in, you know, you know, kind of head of this whole thing was like, "Well, you know, we want to get your reactions and you know topics for next year." And the first thing that came to mind, first of all, I don't do research for other people, so I don't fill out those things. But you know, to me, that would have been one of the obvious things to to discuss: is do we need to have, you know only one way of doing things, right? It'd be particularly challenging because this person, you know, you would think it was in their interest not to say, oh, there's a different way. There's a false dichotomy going on here because it's not one or the other, right? In fact, it's, they were even getting into like 2.0, 2.5, 3, right? So you can have a medicalized version. You can have a traditional cultural-based version. You can have a community version. You can have a, a, even a recreational pseudo therapeutic arm you can have many different ways of doing this and they can all work together right but none of this stuff is going to work until these substances are declassified right taken off the schedule where you get in trouble for using them or growing them or distributing them or working under your license with them that kind of thing if all these things are opened up right then i think we're going to have a win 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 situation Right, but at this point, the way it was, it was uh, you know kind of characterized or or conceptualized, I thought was was kind of a false way of doing it. And of course, it was it was in their own interest, right, to take that point of view. But that's why that person's um, question was so important. Unfortunately, you know, she she seemed to be stuck on this this idea that the, that 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 it was paternalistic and and and. Uh, and patronizing, and, and, and I don't disagree with that. But, you know, when you criticize something, of course, people want to say, you, you aren't responsible. I think this is a trick that a lot of people use. You know, if you're going to criticize something, you have to have an alternative, or else you're just wasting our time. No, not necessarily. But to some degree, you know, I, I would ask her, okay, well, what what is your point of view? And I'm, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that she would have said, well, there's traditional practitioners out there. Let's make this stuff legal. Trust them. Right. Um, don't think that you know better than them based on basically nothing. There's no there's no evidence out there whatsoever to suggest that. So I think all these arms can work in tandem with each other and they can learn from each other. You know, and I don't want to say like, well, you know, let's all just get along because I, I think a little bit of tension is helpful and it makes things progress a bit. But it was a lost opportunity in the symposium um, to really get down to the to the nitty gritty, um, and make, kind of make everybody happy. But if I were to say one thing, um, 
in a practical sense, right, from my point of view at least, um, a top-down approach is not, is not a good approach. Top-down approach comes with all sorts of baggage, bureaucracy, you know, waste of time, waste of, you know, resources, waste of whatever. We can be doing this stuff right now, right? And, and there are conservative elements of the government and liberal elements of the government, even in the state, which is mostly controlled by a conservative majority, supermajority, I think. Um, you know, there are enough people on both sides of the aisle to get this stuff done. And so the bottom-up approach to me is what's much more important because it, it, it does away with all this other stuff that's mostly about making profits, right? We shouldn't be thinking of it that way. We should think of it as getting the substances to people who need them and can, and can, can, can benefit from them and it can be productive, much more productive members of society because of that. And all of that will pay for itself, right? If you just get the ball rolling, right? And you have to trust people. You have to try to let people have a long leash, right? Or at least a longish leash. That, to me, is a much more uh, workable solution than, than having a top-down approach. Top-down approach might, you, you might say, well, but they're doing it in a more rigorous way and whatever they come up with, it might take longer, but it's going to be the, the, the better solution. Well, that, of course, is you know, biasing that there's only one solution, first of all. But it's also a big gamble, right? Because if you put all your eggs in one baskets and it turns out they're wrong, right? Or their or their way is not efficient, or their way, then they put all this energy and time and you know, that's what you gotta be worried about. Because there are a lot of people who want to make a lot of money off this stuff. That is the biggest issue. That's the thing that gets in the way. That's what biases people. And you might say that they're well-meaning people, right? They, they probably, you know, in their heart of hearts are trying to do the right thing, but they're so biased by the worlds that they're in, right? They're, that they're even confused by a young woman standing up and saying what she did, you know? This idea that it's, that it's paternalistic and um, patronizing to them, you know, it's a little bit of the white savior thing. It, it doesn't feel that way to them, you know? Well, because they have never really been on the other side of the equation, right? When you're privileged, you don't know what it's like to go up against the medical system and, and have the medical system just 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 win by attrition, right? They can just uh, they can just keep postponing and keep postponing, right? Just like Trump does with his legal issues, right? Um, you can keep postponing until you, you die, and then you never suffer the consequences. That's kind of what's going on. I don't think it's a good approach to do the top-down thing. I mean, you kind of have to do them all at the same time, in my opinion. But to me, the obvious first step is to do it from the from the bottom up. You know, do it, do it. You know, from the people, right? Let let it's you know it's kind of like a democracy, right? You you have representatives who are at the top, but they are only at the top at the behest of the people, right? The the little people. People have no power. We're, to, we're your bosses, right? You're just a representative of us. You're not the person in control, right? And it's kind of similar in this situation, right? Where a lot of people who need immediate attention, the intervention, who are asking for it, and in some ways they're asking the wrong people. So it's really frustrating for me, you know, in my case where, you know, I just socially learned of a person who had a who had a terrible phobia and was not able to drive their car 
a certain point in their life and um, it, was, it was making their life really difficult where they lived. And uh, they had tried everything. You know, they had tried, you know, any, any kind of cognitive therapy. They had tried, you know, antidepressants. They tried whatever is prescribed for, um, when I say prescribed, I mean it in a general way, um, for, for that, for treatment for somebody with a, a phobia like that. And uh, so I said, okay, I believe you. I believe you did your work. You did your due diligence. And he said, well, I heard about this the psilocybin thing, and apparently that that can be. I didn't know that it had any application to to phobia, but I I didn't really look into the research all that much. But he said, you know, I, I'd be willing to try this. This is an older person who was around in the '60s when, you know, as one of the panelists pointed out, they could take LSD and psilocybin without looking over the shoulders. No fear at all. They weren't illegal at all. There was a little window where it was fine to experiment. And so he's like, it's not like that anymore. Can you tell me where to go? And I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. So I go snooping around. Because I happen to know another practitioner who knows of somebody who works with ayahuasca. And I thought, well, surely if there's somebody in this uh, mid-sized city in the Midwest who's practicing ayahuasca and doing it not just as a pharmaceutical intervention, but as a, but as a therapeutic now, in this case, it wasn't psychotherapeutic, but it was a it was a cultural, um, you know, kind of a modeled along the, you know, the way that they do it traditionally down in, you know, South America. Surely we can find somebody who has access, even just access to psilocybin, right? Um, so if you want to do it yourself, you can take that risk. Um, if you want to find a practitioner, you know, to do the psychotherapeutic part of that, that would be wonderful. Well, it turned out I could not find anybody. I could not find anybody. It was it was very disappointing. I thought it was going to be easy, and it turned out to be impossible. And I gave up, you know. And that's when I started thinking, well, maybe I can be that person, right? Um, but it, you know, I understand why people don't want to get into trouble, you know. Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm you know I'm already kind of semi-retired, but you know when you get to retirement age, in some ways, um, it's easier to take a risk because. If you're not going to rely on your license, you know, to make your living anymore, if you're going to, you know, presumably, you know, get by on your whatever you've saved and whatever Social Security you have, then you're you're kind of invulnerable to that. But that doesn't mean that they can't get you other ways, right? So this is the big dilemma. And uh, there's a really simple, easy solution to it. And things can progress much more rapidly than they have been. And people can get access to treatment, and they can do it in a much more democratic way in terms of it being available to people who, let's say, don't have as, as, as much material resources, money, and what have you. Um, so, you know, why, why is it stuck like this? Well, honestly, I think there must be a part of it that is due to the lobbying that is being done on, the, on behalf of these private institutions that are holding these symposiums, right, to... Um, to put forth their uh, their point of view and, and and get their get their toe in there, you know, so that they can make a ton of money. Um, do they deserve to make a lot of money? Well, they'll say, yeah, we put in so much research. Of course, we deserve. Well, I don't know. That's that seems to be an argument that's thrown around there, but I don't know that it, that it really logically makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, if you were to apply that to other businesses, you know, uh, uh, 
a kind of analog or to that, um, you, you'd probably have a hard time, you know, convincing people of that, right? Like, uh, you know, if you went to, uh, I don't know how, what, what a good analogy would be, but, you know, if you went to a restaurant and the restaurant said to you, hey, look, we got all these, you know, very, very, very rare materials to put together your dinner tonight, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, since we've done that and we, we're not going to charge you for it, we're not going to make pay $100 for a meal, we're still charging you $30 instead of maybe 25 but but it means, you know, that uh, somehow we're entitled to recoup that money. And, um, and so, you know, the, the, the general society through taxes or some other public policy is responsible for helping us out, you know, to do that. Um, I think you'd find that a bit ridiculous, right, that you're, you're front-loading, um, that there's no risk associated with being a capitalistic institution. It's funny how these things work because they, they want to... They want all the benefits from the capitalistic system, but they don't want to have to take the risks of the benefit. You know, that's basically essentially what they're saying when they make an argument like that. You know, we do we do all this research. If it wasn't for us, you know, and if this doesn't work out, it's all going to fall on us, and we're going to have to, you know, uh, pass it on to the consumer, etc. It's always this kind of underlying threat, right? Um, and so I don't know. That energy is just—it seems I, I'm not—I I might not be arguing this very well, but uh, I think you get the drift of what I'm saying. Um, that kind of argument is—is is, is also falls into that, uh, you know, the sleight of hand uh, category for me. It's like you're—you're—you're—you know—you're making a false puppet in a sense and uh, claiming that it's real, and therefore that's why you should make money. Um, I don't know. That, that seems awfully, you know, backwards. And it, uh, I, I would say to those people, you know, um, what is your business plan, right? I mean, if, if you feel that way, then maybe you shouldn't be putting so much money into it. You know, maybe you should put, you know, the right proportion of money into it so that you're not going to, you know, go under. Same with these nonprofits. When I was talking about the other day about this movie, Uncharitable, you know, there's this idea that they have to have these rainy day funds. Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with a rainy day fund, but one that's open, you know, going forward through the rest of time without any, you know, reality check based on the, um, let's say, the uh, the negative consequences of some kind of, uh, you know, downturn in the market or something, right? I mean, you can't just keep uh, raising funds in the name of a rainy day fund when, you know, I mean... At a certain point, that that you're just gonna siphon it off. I mean, I don't know what else you're gonna do with it. Uh, it just seems uh, very uh, vulnerable to to abuse. But anyway, I think I'm gonna stop there because um, it's getting very long. But uh, I'm sure we will get back to this topic uh, in in quite some detail. Um, but this was my general impression of the symposium, and it's kind of reflective of what. At least is going on in one sector um, in the world of psychedelics. But uh, I think we need to figure out, you know, a parallel alternative um, way that we can make this happen that is much more efficient, much more ground-based, grassroots-based, um, and that is uh, realistic and uh, there's only a couple of hurdles involved. Um, 
They might be big curdles because, you know, decriminalizing, legalizing substances is a big issue. It's complicated. But to me, it seems like uh, the easier road to go down and that there's already an infrastructure, right, um, being being created. It's just, of course, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start out and it's going to be difficult to have a business model that works. But eventually, um, you know, of course, the government's there on this because they want a tax base, right? They want to raise taxes, but if you're going to use cannabis, and at this point they're they they're they're legalizing it for recreational use, right? It's not even a a matter of using it for therapeutic things. So if you can do that for cannabis, I I don't see how you can't do it for psilocybin. Although you know people think of cannabis as a as a as a innocuous kind of drug, and if you if you take enough of it, it 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 can give you similar similar effects to psychedelic drugs. Um, you know, it's just that people don't tend to do that because you you smoke it, and if you if you start feeling a little too, too too whacked out, you you stop smoking, right? Whereas when you take a dosage of psilocybin, you know, you it's kind of like having edibles, right? You you ingest it, and you you're you're going to take the ride, whether it goes you know great, horrific, or indifferent, right? But um, <clears throat> of course, with psilocybin, you can titrate up too, and that's the recommendation: is take a little doses, microdoses. And then get to the point where they're, they're in, in psilocybin, for instance, with and anecdotally with cannabis, there does tend to be a, a correct dosage for people, whether you're using it therapeutically or, or recreationally, right? You, you hit the sweet spot, so to speak. And uh, the best way to do that is to titrate up, right? You don't go for a heroic dose and work your way down. That 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 is, you know... Uh, quite a challenge and that's why people are, are afraid to take psychedelic uh, medicine but if you if you try trade up under the guidance of a competent person I don't see how there could be any um, really uh, you know negative negative effects um, you once once you start feeling you know that you're not getting benefit at the cost of the cost the, the you know the benefit to detriment ratio Analysis comes out in the negative. Of course, you don't you don't keep dosing up, but uh, like in Canvas's case, early on, you know you can take very small doses and have pretty outsized effects. So you might think, uh oh, you know I better not titrate up. But your body does adjust to to, to a certain extent, um, and so the positive aspects typically keep shining through, whereas the negative aspects tend to ta- trail off. So then at that point. Once your body has made that adjustment, um, then you can start titrating up again, uh, and and people will take heroic doses just as a challenge, right? There are you know what they call psychonauts, right? People who go off the deep end and and really get into some profound stuff, but uh, I think for the average person, that's not something that they necessarily want to experience because it can be quite, um, you know, let's say challenging uh, mentally, so. Yeah, I'm going to leave off here. Um, So this has been the By Jove Show for Saturday, November 4th, 2023 with Giovanni McGuire. I hope that uh, this was helpful to some people. And as I go on my own journey, um, I'm going to report on this and uh, hopefully have some some good things to say. So stay tuned. Um, And uh, we'll get back to the subject Uh, on a regular basis. But uh, for now, signing off. Y'all have a great day.